I enjoyed talking with Lakin Litton so much about ADHD, so I asked her to come back on the show to do a second episode to dive further into ADHD, an ADHD miniseries, if you will. Today, we're going to talk about ADHD and physical health. You will hear how Lakin's ADHD diagnosis is connected to her medical condition, how she advocates for herself, and how you can do the same. I felt so seen while talking with Lakin on this episode. I learned a lot about a topic that is not discussed nearly as often as it needs to be. We basically sum up 2023 for me in a lot of ways on the show today. If you or someone you love has ADHD, you want to listen to this episode all the way through. So let's go. Welcome to Living My Restless Life podcast. I'm your host, HPG. In season two, you'll continue to hear about how we can heal no matter what we go through, some tips and truths for self-improvement, and some little nuggets of wisdom for finding yourself on your path. I'll be hosting some mini-sodes, interviewing some awesome guests, and of course, some episodes with my occasional co-host, Martha. So let's go. My chronic pain and other physical health problems, I have known about pretty much my entire life. Whereas with my ADHD, I did not find out about it until I was 28. Um, <clears throat> so I have a connective tissue disorder called Lloyd's Beat. It wasn't identified until 2015. Um, prior to that, I was actually diagnosed as Marfan's because they didn't know of what else I might be in terms of a connective tissue disorder. And so uh, connective tissue disorders tend to cause hypermobility. There's some vascular risk. Um, I always joke with my doctors and I start singing head, shoulders, knees, and toes because it just, it impacts every aspect of, of your body. Um, and so it's something that I've lived with my whole life. I've dealt with chronic pain my entire life. Um, but as I came to find out that it was actually Lois Beats, I was able to discover the other, <clears throat> the other comorbidities I was fighting with such as gastrointestinal issues, migraines, um, thyroid issues, things like that, I came to find out were also part of <clears throat> my issues. And then as I obtained my ADHD diagnosis, it became apparent that there are actually quite a few ADHDers who deal with hypermobility and they deal with chronic pain and they also deal with several other comorbidities. And so um, it, it's been <clears throat> unfortunate to see so many, you know, struggling with multiple aspects of their life, but it's also been validating and, you know, reassuring to see that we're not alone. And I think it's really important to shine the light on that, that we are having multiple struggles and we can show understanding for each other in that. Yeah. So tell me again, the name of the diagnosis. Sure. So my diagnosis is called Lois Deep. So it's L-O-E-Y-S hyphen D-I-E-T-Z. Um, and so a few other um, similar diagnoses are Marfan's, um, which is also known as Abe Lincoln syndrome, and uh, also Ehlers-Danlos, which is one that a lot of people have heard of because there's so many variations of it. And that is a connective tissue disorder. Correct. Yes. Is that, is hypermobility in that umbrella 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's part of that umbrella. Um, so the connective tissue or the soft tissue, uh, it impacts so many different parts of your body. So um, vision problems are very common, um, as well as, you know, dislocation of joints, subluxation of joints, just the hypermobility in general. A lot of ADHDers end up diagnosed with fibromyalgia because they do have that kind of head to, bo head to toe uh, body pain that they deal with. And there's not necessarily an explained reason why. Um, and also, ah, I lost my thought, ADHD. <laughs> um, yeah, so it does cause the hypermobility. It does cause um, a lot of those issues. Now, just because you are hypermobile does not mean you have a connective tissue disorder. However, if you have a connective tissue disorder, then more than likely you are hypermobile. So the two aren't interchangeable. Um, and the hypermobility and the um, connective tissue disorder, a lot of times it stems from a specific gene mutation. Um, again, not a doctor. This is just my own personal experience and research. So don't quote me on this. Um, but in my experience, it has been typically there is some form of gene mutation that is causing the connective tissue disorder. Um, and so in my case, I have Lois Dietz type two, uh, which is a very specific gene mutation that has impacted most of my family uh, on my dad's side. And so part of that particular gene mutation also brings a uh, risk of stroke aneurysm um, along with other vascular issues. And so most of my family on my father's side have actually passed due to aneurysms, whether it's brain, stomach, or heart, um, because back back during my you know my grandmother's younger years, they weren't really aware of what was going on, and so she lost a brother due to a stomach aneurysm that wasn't caught. Um, my uh, my uncle was gone from a brain aneurysm, um, and then just recently in 2021, um, I had to witness my father uh, struggling with it, and he was not following up with healthcare. And so in January of 2022, he passed away, unfortunately, because the, the aneurysm or the dissection, uh, whatever it was that was going on with his heart, we didn't know. And it, it just took him. And so um, when it comes to our ADHD and our connective tissue disorders and, and different comorbidities, it can be really difficult with the ADHD to stay on top of those things. Um, it can be really difficult to schedule appointments, to keep track of the appointment, to follow up on certain things. Um, but I can't emphasize how important it is if, if those resources are available to you to use them um, because being proactive about your chronic pain and being proactive about any kind of monitoring you might need if you happen to have a comorbidity is, is so, so important to preventing these types of things because, you know, my father was, I'm fairly certain ADHD. Um, I, I won't say one way or the other because he was never officially diagnosed, but we have a lot in common when it comes to those kinds of symptoms. And unfortunately he just, didn't care to follow up. And, you know, in the end, that's, that's what took him in. It was something that was completely preventable had we known what was going on. Wow. Thank you for sharing that and being so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I'm really sorry about Thank your you. dad. I lost my dad when I was 33, not related to cancer, which I'm a cancer survivor, but related to um, sepsis. And it was probably the hardest time of my life. Oh, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it, it's hard. And it, it was very unexpected. Um, my son is autistic and he was 10 at the time. And so, you know, getting him through that was also very difficult. We, we had moved out here as soon as it was safe with the pandemic um, to actually keep an eye on him because we knew he was isolated and by himself. And so we were actually living with him at the time. 
And uh, it, it was it was definitely life changing to go through that experience and to you know try and help a child through that experience as well because it was so close to home. Gosh, that's hard. Do you feel like that that experience was a catalyst to look further into your own health, and did it make you a stronger advocate? It definitely caused me to take it much more seriously. Um, it had always been impressed upon me the importance of, you know, keeping up with my monitoring, keeping up with the various aspects of, you know, my my physical health issues, and also being a single parent. It was not optional to me uh, to have down days, and so um, I was very motivated to try and find ways to live with my different comorbidities and live with my different pain issues so that I could provide my my son a quality of life that I currently wasn't able to do. Um, but when this happened with my father, it definitely kind of pushed me a little further to take the actual connective tissue disorder seriously. Um, prior to that, I had always kind of pushed myself and just kind of accounted for what the repercussions were going to be. So I would know, okay, I'm taking my son to the zoo. And so that's going to be a whole day of walking. It's going to be a whole day on my feet. I need to account for at least three days after that, that I'm probably going to be sore, stiff and or in bed all day. Um, and so it's kind of caused me to take it a little bit more seriously and to not push myself quite so hard in those kinds of scenarios and to make the accommodations that I need. Um, and so we have learned to kind of accommodate like, okay, if we're going to be out <clears throat> at the zoo, we're going to do a half day or I am going to get a mobility scooter so that I'm not walking the entire time and, and causing more pain than I need to be in. Um, you know, also I now have a service animal who assists when I need extra stability. Um, and so there are resources available, like I said, and if they are available to you, it is not a sign of weakness to utilize them. Um, and that is probably one of the hardest lessons I learned with my dad is that he had resources available to him that he was not interested in utilizing. Um, he had some other things going on and he just didn't care. He just wanted to sit in his chair, watch TV, do his thing. And he was the best way I can describe him as a, a grumpy cat version of Jeff, Jeff Foxworthy. Um, just Southern funny. He sounded so grumpy, but he was the sweetest person. Um, but he just was very stoic. And his mentality was, you know, whatever's going to take me is going to take me. And couldn't kind of be bothered to deal with the doctors or anything like that. He was just tired of it. He dealt with it his whole life. Um, and so especially when we are younger, it's so important to utilize those resources to prevent us from dealing with those extra consequences as we get older. Um, because unfortunately, he stopped taking care of himself. And then now he had his grandson and he was getting to spend time with his grandson. And he was regretting that he hadn't taken care of himself because he couldn't get up and get around the house to, you know, interact with my son. And, you know, anytime he tried to do anything, he would be so out of breath and so winded and just be really, really struggling because um, he had COPD uh, three and emphysema as well. Um, from being a smoker. And so he couldn't get up without getting winded. And he would constantly say like, I've got to get on the treadmill or I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Never would. But that, that regret was there that he hadn't taken care of his body and his mind so that he could enjoy his family now that it was there. Um, and so that, that is 
definitely something that caused me to advocate stronger for using those resources. It's not a sign of weakness. I used to think it was. Um, I used to be very proud. I used to not want to look like a disabled person um, because I did not want to be treated differently. I did not want to be put at a disadvantage. And now I realize no matter what other people think, this is my life. This is my son's life. And I I'm going to use the resources that are available to me to make sure that it is the best life that we can possibly have. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. I have a question. When you mentioned head, shoulders, knees, and toes, and you use the zoo as an example and like the recovery period, I want to hear more about the pain. Is it in the, tell me where the pain is. Sure. So in my case, um, my pain comes a lot from my my weak ankles and knees. Uh, it feeds up into my hips, which feeds up into my lower back, which then feeds up to my upper back. So it kind of, because I don't have a stable foundation, it causes kind of everything to hurt when I overdo it. And so, you know, it'll start with my legs being sore, but then my lower back gets sore. Well, then because I'm accommodating my lower back, then, you know, my neck and my shoulders get sore. And so it just kind of develops into, you know, that head, shoulders, knees and toes kind of, you know, mentality of, okay, now I am like fully inflamed in my whole body because I'm trying to accommodate something or because I've overdone it. Um, and also, um, you know, I'm, I'm prone to migraines. So that overexertion or being out in the heat for too long, getting too dehydrated, um, you know, all of those contribute to migraines. So then I also have to kind of take into account that I may or may not be triggering a migraine by, by pushing myself this far. Um, and so that's another reason why we've kind of had to cut our trips a little bit shorter or find other accommodations to try and prevent that migraine from happening as well. Because if, if I end up with one of those, it could be a week before I recover from that. Yes, migraines are incredibly debilitating. When you talk to your medical provider about the pain that you're experiencing, what interventions did the provider put in place and what has been helpful? One of the first things that any healthcare provider has always recommended to me is physical therapy um, because the goal is to stabilize the joints. And so their first priority is, you know, stabilizing those joints and also pain management so that you can continue to stabilize those joints. So a lot of times you'll see a referral for a physical therapist and some form of pain medication being recommended to get you through it while you're dealing with that. Um, you'll also see a lot of referrals to typically rheumatology um, because chronic pain, they, they want to rule out any kind of like rheumatoid arthritis or, you know, osteoporosis, anything like that. They want to, they want to take care of that and make sure that that's not what actually is going on. And then typically when they're not able to find any root cause for what is happening, they tend to throw it under the fibromyalgia umbrella. Um, now that's not to say that fibromyalgia doesn't exist or that there aren't indications of it. Um, however, it has, in my experience, been kind of an easy catch-all when they don't actually know where the pain is coming from. And I've had several clients mention that. And so in order for us to actually find out whether or not there is something genetically going on, we have to specifically request to be referred to a geneticist in order to have that testing done. Um, because it just, it doesn't seem like, at least in, in my experience and my client's experience, it doesn't seem like that particular field comes to mind for a primary care or for a rheumatologist after ruling out 
all the other possibilities. It tends to go, well, we don't know what's wrong with you. Your lab work is normal. Congratulations, you're perfectly healthy. Even though you're still in pain 24-7, we're just going to call fibromyalgia. You just described, excuse me, 2023 for me. And I want to thank you for that. Did your medical providers ever try to give you prednisone? And was that helpful? It was not helpful. Um, The prednisone, I had one rheumatologist that I, I had a very good experience with. He acknowledged that it was most likely my connective tissue disorder that was causing some sort of issue, Um, but we weren't 100% sure where to go from there. There wasn't a whole lot of research just yet. And so he would proactively prescribe me a couple of prednisone packs for when I had trips planned or when I had weeks planned that I could not afford to be out of commission. Um, At the time, I lived in Florida, so it wasn't uncommon for me to take my son you know, we, the, that was our one splurge was a Disney pass. And so we could go with our friends and his friends to be able to go walk around the parks and stuff. And in order for me to actually be able to do that, you know, my doctor would prescribe like a prednisone pack for me so that I could kind of take it a couple of days before to build up my, my stamina, be able to do the trip and then kind of have less of a recovery time afterward. Um, it helped in that regard just because it gave me that little extra boost to get through it. But in terms of actually like long-term sustainably treating the root issue, it was not effective. Um, Another medication that they tried was gabapentin. Um, And and gabapentin was helpful for the pain, but terrible for waking for me. And so while it, it definitely helped with the neurological pain, it definitely helped with kind of getting through the day to day, that weight gain put more strain on my joints. And so while I was in less constant pain and dull pain, I was experiencing more sharper pain because I was having more subluxations. I was having more dislocations of my joint. Um, And so it ended up not being worth it for me. And I ended up needing to uh, wean off of it and look for other options because did it work? Theoretically, yes. Um, But the, you know, the, the benefits versus the disadvantages, they just weren't worth it. In my case, I wasn't able to be active because every time I try and do something, you know, my, my elbow would pop or my knee would pop. And so I couldn't do it. <laughs> couldn't do anything, even though I wasn't in pain. And it was almost more frustrating at that point because it was like, okay, I feel like I can do it, but yet now I can't do it because I know what the risk is. Yeah. And prednisone causes weight gain. Mm-hmm. I am currently on a prednisone taper to prepare for our trip for the same reason you just described. And I'm so curious when you talked to the rheumatologist or your primary care doctor, Mm -hmm. did you say, Hey, I have ADHD. Can this be a contributor or did they arrive at that conclusion? So actually I have not had a doctor tell me that my ADHD was connected to any of these issues. That has been my own personal experience in talking with, you know, a like-minded community and also talking with my clients that I've, I've seen that pattern and that trend. Um, and then also my own personal research. So back when I was trying to work with a rheumatologist, I did not actually have my ADHD diagnosis. Um, I do recall having conversations with him about how difficult it was for me to remember with the prednisone pack to take the pills during the certain meals when I was supposed to take them. Um, 
and, and various struggles like that. But in terms of that actually translating into, you know, the ADHD or any of those other struggles that I was dealing with, um, we didn't even realize that they existed. We just kind of chalked it up to me being a single mom working multiple jobs. Um, and so that part of it kind of was dismissed. Um, and then when I was 28 and I was actually diagnosed, and I found a community of other ADHD individuals, other autistic individuals, just, just neurodiverse group in general, um, I started noticing a pattern in, in everybody that I was bonding with and talking to that like they had similar diagnoses, they had similar symptoms, they were dealing with similar problems. Um, like you said, this was your 2023 <laughs> where you know, you've, you've been through this and, and we've not talked about this at all. This is the first time I'm hearing of you going through that experience. Um, so you can definitely see that there is an underlying pattern there. Um, you know, whatever the science is, whatever the doctors think about it, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but just from personal experience, I've seen that, you know, we, we have a very similar struggle when it comes to seeing the overlap between our ADHD and our physical pain problems. Yeah. My physical pain with my knees and shoulders started in my twenties and I was, I'm just going to be honest, incredibly underweight. And there was no quote unquote real reason for a 24 year old woman to be in that type of pain. Mm -hmm. And I went to a rheumatologist and they were throwing lots of medication. And what those medications did was their purpose to suppress your immune system. Mm -hmm. Well, that worked. So I got pneumonia a couple times mm -hmm. and I stopped taken any type of medication and just kind of shut down. And then it seemed to get a little bit better. And then after I finished cancer treatment, it came back and I've been back and forth to the rheumatologist on and off prednisone this entire year. And one theme that my rheumatologist continues to tell me is hypermobility. Mm. And that said to me, A, like I know what that is. I have an idea because I did some research, right. but it's like, oh, you have hypermobility. So what do you do with that? Am I just going to be in pain, not be able to kneel to take care of my toddler? Like this is your life now. And this conversation has been really inspiring. And I started physical therapy the end of July. And I'm really excited about that portion because I think that's the ticket. Absolutely. And it definitely can be. Um, that I will say is one of the overlaps with ADHD to be aware of is we start strong with routines. We start strong with organization. And then after a couple of weeks, when the novelty wears off, we tend to kick it. And so when you are starting your physical therapy, when you are learning your exercises, it's really important to find a sustainable way to keep up with those exercises, whether it's a checklist, sorry, my bread maker is going off. Um, whether it's a checklist that allows you to have the dopamine of checking off that you did the thing, uh, whether it's a reminder in your phone that goes off, um, habit stacking. If you know you're going to have a cup of coffee every single morning and that is like your religious routine every single day, try stacking something before or after it. So while your coffee is brewing, do your stretches or, you know, before you even get out of bed and before you get that coffee, do your stretches, do something so that that, that one milestone that you know is solid every single day is an anchor for you to remember this new piece. 
um, so that you don't kind of fall off of that habit and, and not reap the benefits of the physical therapy because it's great to work with the therapist and to be able to see the progress when you're there. But as they send you home with those exercises, if you're not doing them, you're not going to see the results you want to see. Right. You're exactly right. I like that idea of pairing the exercise before or after something that I do every day. That's a really good idea. And I just think this conversation has been really fascinating. And how I arrived to, it could be like ADHD related, was my best friend was sending me articles that she was reading. And then I started thinking about every, well, not every, a lot of ADHD folks that I know, some have Ehlers-Danlos, some have chronic mm -hmm. pain. And I started thinking, I was like, okay. And I know I've been a patient a long time with cancer and now this, that provider, medical providers often don't draw those connections. So I think it's beneficial in terms of self-advocating to just for the listeners, like if this, if you're like, oh, I feel seen, they're talking about my situation or something similar. If you don't speak up, changing it half. So just mm -hmm. ask, like, Absolutely. hey, could this be a factor? And if they say no, don't give up. And like you were saying, like, you know, like getting community, community, and this is no replacement for medical advice. But again, that like get with like-minded others where you can feel seen and heard and gain more tips to try. Because when you're in chronic pain, it affects everything. Very isolating, for sure. It is. And it's defeating because you want to do the thing. Yeah. And, and then you have to find that right balance between your brain being willing to do the thing and your body being willing to do the thing. Right. And when they arrive at the same time, that's huge. Mm -hmm. Or your brain wants to do it. Your body says no. Or your body says yes. And your brain says no. It can get into a loop that can further isolate you because you're afraid of the pain. Mm -hmm. And like pain causes depression. Depression causes pain. Mm -hmm. It's just, it can be so, it's such a cycle, but you're not alone. Lakin can help. <laughs> I would love to help. Um, and, and then a couple other things too, like you mentioned with the community, you're able to share those tips and tricks. You're able to share what's worked for you, what's not worked for you. You're able to get that additional perspective of, oh, so this doesn't work for me, but if I change it just this little bit like this person's done, maybe that will work. Um, so it gives you that sounding board to really work with somebody. And it also validates what you're going through so that when you are having that conversation with your medical professional, you have that confidence to advocate for yourself. And a lot of times we tend to dismiss our ADHD symptoms and say, you know, I should be capable of taking a pill every single day at the same time. Let's be real. That may or may not happen. You know, we, we do have ADHD. We do have off days. We do tend to forget, you know, different things like that. Sometimes we have a hard enough time taking, you know, whatever ADHD medication we might be on. And yet they claim that that's addicting. It, it, it's just one of those things that we struggle with. And so, um, you know, being very honest with your medical professional about those different struggles you have when you are talking about, you know, the physical therapy or, um, you know, the medications that you're trying, the various things like that, by telling your doctor, I know I'm going to struggle with, remember, you take this pill at the same time every day, or I know I'm going to struggle with, you know, keeping up with my exercises. Your doctor may have an idea of, okay, 
if we know you're going to struggle with at home exercises, let's get you into the physical therapist more frequently so that you have that extra accountability. Or if you have a hard time with this medication because it has to be taken at the same time every day, let's try this alternative medication that may work instead. Um, you know, but you won't know what options you have if you don't have that conversation. And if you do have a doctor who is dismissive or who isn't listening to you, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. And it is absolutely nothing against the medical professional, but that just may not be a good fit for you. And you may want to find another medical professional who will listen to those symptoms that you're dealing with, because the whole goal of this is to improve your quality of life. If your medical professional is not partnering with you to help you improve your quality of life, and it's not taking the things you say seriously when you live in your body. You know what you're experiencing. You know where your struggles are and what your challenges are. You want to find somebody who is going to listen. Um, and a lot of times, especially I see in ADHD millennial women, we've been taught a lot of times to be quiet, be small, be nice, don't be rude, um, you know, don't, don't disagree with people. We tend to avoid conflict. And so we, we stick with the same situation because we don't want to offend somebody or be a problem, or we think we might be asking too much. You're not, your health is not something that is too much to ask for. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's really important to acknowledge that and to recognize that this is your life. Yes, this doctor has been to medical school, but what the, the symptoms you're experiencing, they may have only read a couple of pages on in one chapter in one class. You live this. Right. And so- you have the opportunity, one, to improve your quality of life, and two, to potentially educate this doctor to be able to better help somebody in the future. Yeah. A tip that I have from my social work days and being a patient, if you have trouble with advocating for yourself, kind of go in there and act like you're advocating for your kid or your bestie or your partner. I had to do that and take myself out until I got the practice. And think about would I, how would I advocate for my spouse? Do that mm -hmm. and use the words quality of life, use them. And if you're not vibing with the doctor, if you're not feeling heard, find another one if you can. I totally agree. Absolutely. And another uh, thought too, because when we get rattled, um, our memory recall can be an issue. And so writing things down. If you have something you struggle with every single day, but you can't seem to remember it when you are under the pressure of, you know, that, that small room with the doctor in the room, write those things down, whether it's on your phone, piece of paper, whatever, keep a log of the things that you're struggling with. And so that way, when you are in the doctor's office and you're saying, I can't seem to do this. And he says, or she says, you know, why do you think that is, or what's happening? What's leading up? How often is that happening? You have a baseline to work off of instead of just, I can't remember. <laughs> Yeah. Because I have had that. I have had that conversation before of like, I can't remember. I just know it happens. Um, and so coming in with that extra knowledge, coming in with that baseline, it also indicates to your doctor that you are serious about this. Yeah. And take notes in real time or ask the provider if you can record the conversation, ask permission first. And that way you can replay it when you're in a space to process that information. Because one of the things that I studied in my career was neurotypical patients remember about 15 to 20% of what the provider says. So you throw some neurodivergency on there, some anxiety, sprinkle some pain, 
some prednisone that makes you feel like you're off the teetotal rails. Mm-hmm. You may remember 5% of yeah. what that person said. And denial is extremely power- powerful. So we don't have the ears to hear. We don't want to hear some of the things. So then you got like 3% of what the provider said. So my point is take someone with you if you can, write it down, record it, ask for their permission, please. I don't want any doctors coming for me. (laughs) (laughs) HPG suggested you record them, you know, get consent. Mm -hmm. Those are some ways that we can advocate. And it sounds like in your community, there's space for folks to even practice that advocacy. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, we've, I'm a Southern elder millennial. I don't know what I am. Gen X, (laughs) old millennial from the South. So we are naturally conditioned and we have a PhD in our own life. So sounds like your community, there's space to practice. It's definitely a space to practice. And, you know, part of the program that I offer actually includes scripts for having conversations with your doctor. And so it gives you that space, not only to practice that conversation, but also some tips and tricks and pointers, some of which we've covered today of how to make the most of that conversation. Um, and then like you had mentioned, taking notes, bringing a person with you, recording the conversation with their permission so that you are able to apply that information after the fact instead of you know getting hung up on the fact that they said one thing that felt dismissive and now you are ignoring the entire rest of the conversation. You get home, you don't remember what you're supposed to do with this medication. Um, you know, there, there are ways to work around that. And so that, that is part of what our community covers is, you know, how to have that conversation, how to work with the doctor, what happens after that appointment, um, and, and then just the sense of community and, and bouncing ideas off of each other as well. Yeah. I want to circle back to one more thing before mm-hmm. we wrap up, because I think it's important. When you mentioned that some of us ADHD folks forget to take our medicine and our providers are worried about being addicted. I want to say this as a person who was clinically by DSM-5 definition addicted to alcohol. You don't forget your addiction. That I can tell you. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say that if folks are feeling stigma around taking a quote-unquote controlled substance, I'm Mm -hmm. not saying you can't get addicted to that. Right. But what I'm saying is people often don't forget to take what they're addicted to. Exactly. And so in in line with that, ADHDers do tend to have addictive tendencies, but those addictive tendencies a lot of times are to compensate for what our brains are struggling with. And so the fact that we're taking a medication that actually helps balance our brain, it can actually do the opposite. It can help us to work through those other things. Again, not a doctor not an addiction specialist, nothing like that. But just in my experience and what I've noticed from clients is, you know, like you said, you don't forget your addiction. You don't forget your medication if that's what you're addicted to. Um, But like you said, like, you know, alcohol, drugs, video games, music. I mean, you can become addicted to pretty much anything if it helps you cope with your current situation. And so, um, yeah, a lot of times when, when you do have ADHD, medication truly isn't one of them. There's just so much stigma around it. Um, that it it makes it a little bit difficult. Yeah. I think that's a good topic for you and I to cover on another episode. Sounds like fun. So remind us again, Lakin, where can ADHD folks who are interested in getting in community and hearing more about this topic or getting support 
where can they find you? Absolutely. So our community is located on Facebook. It is a Facebook group called Mindful Millennials with ADHD Coaching Community. And if you are interested in working uh, with me, you can find me at sleekbio.com. That's S-L-E-E-K-B-I-O.com slash Lake and Litton, L-A-K-E-N-L-I-T-T-O-N. Awesome. Thank you so much for being back on the show. This has been solid gold. I feel sane. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living My Breastless Life. Head over to Instagram and follow According to HPG to stay connected to the show. Go get your mammograms.